emoji. Pronounced emoji. Noun, small digital image or icon used to express an idea or emotion in electronic communication. Emoji is Japanese, e meaning picture, moji, character. Now, the first emoji was uh, created back in 1998 by Shigetaka Kurita for a mobile internet uh, platform. And the idea originating from symbols used in weather forecasts. Now, emojis are everywhere. And if you didn't notice, people even wear them today, believe that or not. Now, many people communicate in emojis. And many of you here today, why are there people taking pictures? I do not understand this. I am going to regret this one big time. Anyway, many people, we text with emojis. We send emails with emojis. We respond to social media with emojis. I mean, it has become a very common way of expressing one's thoughts or one's feelings. Now, the next seven weeks, we are going to go ahead and look at emojis. Now, we're going to study them, but not necessarily the pictures. We're, we're going to also look at the feelings behind the pictures. And uh, because you and I need to learn how to handle our emotions, how to manage our moods, how to work through feelings in a biblical way based on God's word. Now, there is a man in scripture who wrote so beautifully, and he opens up his heart and he shares it with all of the world. And he's going to teach us how to handle disappointment. And that's the first emoji we're going to study today. Disappointment. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 42. Psalm chapter 42. And in Psalm chapter 42, we have this gentleman who truly does open up his heart. And under the inspiration of Holy Scripture he is going to share with us what God has to teach us about our emotions and how to handle them. Now, this is a very, very spiritual man that we're going to look at. He is known as one of the sons of Korah. Now, that may not mean much to you, but you have to understand, he is a Levite who would bring groups of God's people, pilgrims, to the house of God for worship. And so he's a worship leader. He's on staff at the church, so to speak. And, uh, and what it's going to teach us is that no one is immune to disappointment. Every single one of us, if you're not going through it right now, you will have times of disappointment and discouragement in your life. This man is struggling in life, and he's struggling deeply. He, he is doubting God, and he's a spiritual leader. And he's deeply, deeply discouraged. And, and in some way, he's been exiled out of Jerusalem, out of the city of God. And he's been uprooted. He's been cast out. And he's in unfamiliar territory. He's in Gentile territory. We know that because Psalm 43 is a continuation of 42. And in the first verse, we're told that he is in an ungodly nation. And so he's missing his home. He's missing his family. He's missing being with God's people. He's missing the house of God. And you may be here today, and honestly, you feel like you've been cast out. You've been cast out of your marriage. You've been cast out of a relationship. You've been cast out of your job. You've lost your home. You've been cast out. And you're alone. You're discouraged. You know, you're depressed. You're disappointed. That's where this man is. And 
we've all been there and we'll be there again. And he's going to teach us. So Psalm 42 is this beautiful, soulful psalm. And a psalm is a song. It's a poem. And it has this ebb and flow of the emotional tides of life. There are high tides in our life and low tides. And so we will see this ebb and flow of his life. And our outline will follow the ebb and flow of this man's struggle. So I want you to turn to Psalm 42. And I want you to read with me just the first four uh, verses. And by the way, if you ever come into harvest, we dig into the Word of God here. The Word of God is the textbook for life. And we encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you don't have one, we have them on the back tables for you. Most of the verses will be on the screen. But what we encourage you, bring your Bible. Follow along with me, just the first four verses to begin. Read it with me. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. How do we handle the disappointments in life? Number one is this. you got to long for the living God. you got to long for God. You've got to seek God. You've got to yearn for God and God alone. Listen, disappointment ends where seeking God begins. Disappointment ends where seeking God begins. Now, it doesn't automatically end right there, but that's the beginning of the end. When you finally start to long with all your soul for your God. And that's where this man is. It's the turning point. And he likens it to being a panting deer, this this animal just parched and dry. It's been chased by dogs or wolves or, or coyotes, and it's desperately needing rest and water to regain its strength. And that's where some of you are here today. You feel like you're being chased down and you're exhausted and you're depleted and you're tired and you're worn out and you're out of breath and you don't know how much more you can take. You, you've had it up to here and you just want to be done with it all. That's where this guy is. He's so thirsty. I can't take it anymore. And he starts longing for God, panting for God. In the, in the depth of his inmost being, there's this desperation about his life as he craves God. And I want you to notice something about him. He's not running from God. He's running to God. He's not, he's not ignoring God. He's seeking God. He's not blaming God for all of his problems. He's going after God. And that's what you need to do. You need to stop blaming God for your problems. You need to stop running from God and the sins that you have. You need to stop ignoring God and the, and the messages he's been sending you. And you need to come back to him and yearn for him and long for him and start seeking him. He says, my soul pants for you, oh God. As our bodies need water, so our souls need God. Matthew eleven twenty eight, the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and say it with me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find what? 
rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is rest for your soul, but it is found first in your relationship with God. Most of you here today have a relationship with God, but some of you do not. Some of you are religious. You go to church once in a while. You show up at a service. It is so much more than that. There is a God that offers you soul rest to quench your thirst. But you must come to him personally. You must place your faith in this God. At the end of the service, I always lead in a prayer. You may be here today and and you need God and you know you need God and it's not by accident you are here. And he's offering you rest for your soul. But it starts with a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, and turning from our sin and turning to him. You say, well, I still have questions about all this. Well, you heard the announcement today about the starting point class. There's an opportunity to ask questions about the faith, about church. Maybe you're new to faith. Maybe you're coming back to the faith. Maybe you're coming back to church, coming back. No question's a bad question. Next week, those, those orientations after every service, I encourage you to come back. Ask those questions. Here's a man yearning for God. Look at verse 2. Thirsting for God, for the living God. He is our life. And so, so I want you to notice, he's deep in this ocean of disappointment, and he's sinking fast. And he's far from the surface, and, and his oxygen level is low, and he's desperate to breathe, and, and you can hear the panic in his voice. My soul thirsts for God. I need God. Why is he thirsting for God? Because he's the living God. He's alive. He's real. He knows you. He cares for you. He loves you. The world offers countless substitutes to quench the thirst of your soul and nothing satisfies. None of it does. The only thing, listen, only the living God can quench a living soul. Only the living God can quench a living soul. Money is not alive. It'll never quench your thirst. Possessions and material things will never quench your thirsty soul. All the ecstasies of life and experiences of life will never satisfy your soul. Some of you are waiting for the next high and living for the weekend and waiting for it. It's never going to quench your thirsty soul. The living God alone quenches the living soul. You must come to the living God. Listen, you must drink of God or die. And that's the truth. You drink of God or you die. Jesus to the woman at the well in John 4. Everyone who drinks of this water, regular water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, what? Shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then in verse 2 it ends, they shall come and appear before God. And he has this humble desire to be close to God, to be in the presence of God, to be in the house of God. He is never so much at home as when he's in the house of the living God. How do you handle the disappointments of life? You start by longing for the living God. Secondly, you sob through the struggle. You cry and you weep and you grieve because the struggle is real. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. 
It's okay to cry. Some of you need to hear that. It's okay to cry a lot. Some of you think there's something wrong with you because you cry a lot. There's nothing wrong with you. It's okay to cry. This man says, I cry so much. It's like, it's like my food. I cry through my meals and I break down throughout the day. And some of you know what that's like. The heartache is so real and so deep. You just break down because it's so hard. You know what the culture tells you? You're a big baby. Big boys don't what? They don't cry. That's a lie. That's a lie. We studied this last Wednesday, midweek boost. I encourage you to come out midweek, 7 o'clock, be here. And we saw that big boys do cry. Men of God do cry. Jeremiah, one of the prophets of old, was called the weeping prophet. Joseph, seven times in the book of Genesis, we see him weeping and weeping and weeping when he reveals himself to his brothers in Egypt in Genesis 45.1. He can't control himself before those who stood before him. He cries, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, with tears streaming down his eyes. I am Joseph, tears streaming down his cheeks. I am Joseph. Verse 14 of the same passage, he falls on the brother, Benjamin, his youngest brother, and weeps. And Benjamin weeps on his neck, and he kisses all of his brothers, and he weeps on them. He will see his father Jacob for the first time in 23 years. Genesis 46, 29, he'll take his chariot and go to Goshen and meet his father. And as soon as he appears before him, he falls on his neck, and he wept on his neck, what? A long time. And he just... He just sobs like a baby. He just sobs. He just sobs. He's been crying on everybody and anyone. 23 years, he hasn't seen his dad. I mean, you say, well, he's just a big sissy. He's a girly man. Yeah, would you say that about Israel's greatest warrior? Songs of him that proclaimed slaying his tens of thousands. Can you imagine meeting David? Man of men. Warrior like none other. With a sword he has slain over 10,000 people. The enemies of God. You know what you know about David? You know what we learn? He was a weeping warrior. And he freely cried. David throughout the Psalms sheds tears. One in particular is Psalm 6. I'm weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. My bed is soaked with my tears. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye is wasted away with grief. David throughout his life sheds tears. He, he cries with Jonathan, his best friend, when he finds out he's got to run out of the kingdom. He cries with all the men at Ziklag when their w- women, their wives and children are captured. And boy, do they cry. First Samuel 34, all the people who are with him lift up their voices. They wept until there was no strength left in them to weep. He will cry at the death of Saul and Jonathan and the death of Abner, the general, and his newborn child and his son, Abner, and another son, Absalom. And he will cry over his family and over the kingdom. Everything's being torn apart. And he will cry and he will cry and he will cry. It is okay to cry. It's okay to cry. God gives you permission to weep and grieve. 
and cry and cry and cry. Why does he struggle? Why does he cry? Because he has a struggle with people. People do that to us, don't they? They can bring out the tears like nothing else. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Where is your God? You're a spiritual leader. Yeah, where is your God? Remember, he's in a foreign land. He's in Gentile territory, and they're, they're sarcastically ridiculing and mocking his faith, either saying there really is no God and he can't help you, or there is a God, but guess what? He doesn't care about you. He's forgotten all about you. You're going through this big struggle in your life. Yeah, where is your God? Interestingly enough, they obviously know he's a man of God. He has not hidden his faith from them. He has shared it with them. He has lived it openly before them. The struggle is real for some of you. The ridicule, the mocking, the sarcasm that comes your way from people at work that mock you because you're a Christian. Friends, maybe even a spouse. A spouse that won't even come to church with you, and if they do, they give you a hard time about it. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's your so-called friends on social media who mock you and go after your faith. He struggles with people. I want you to notice he also struggles with the past. Not the bad past, but the good past. Look at verse 4. These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng, lead them in the procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. You know what he's struggling with? He's struggling with the good old days. I remember how it used to be, what I used to do, where I used to go. The job I used to have, the people I used to be with, the joy and the great times I used to experience. And that's some of you here today. My marriage used to be good. I remember when. I used to have that job. It was great. I don't have it anymore. I used to have that income. We used to live in that house. It was better in that neighborhood. It was better in that state. It was better. I know, Illinois stinks, but anyway, that's another sermon. <laughs> I used to have so much joy and greatness and great times with people. I used, some of you keep living in the past. You're torturing yourself with the past. You got to get over the past and press forward to the future, friend. You're never going to get through your disappointment if you keep going there, keep going back there, keep going over there. Leave the past in the past and press on forward. And he pours his soul out over this. How do you handle the disappointments in life? You long for the living God and you sob through the struggles. Third is you talk sense to your soul. And all of a sudden, this guy has a conversation with himself. Uh, look at this. We, we see this soulful refrain of the psalmist. Look at verse 5. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. He's like, okay, I got to get perspective here. I need to have a conversation with myself. Why am I acting like this? Some of you need to act, ask that question to yourself. You need to look in the mirror and you need to say, what am I doing? Why am I talking like this? Why am I acting like this? Why am I struggling like this? He's saying, I got to snap out of it. And he is spiritually slapping himself across the face. 
turn to the person next to you and slap yourself across the face. Not them. (laughs) Show them what it looks like to slap yourself across the face. Just do that. Sometimes we need to do that, spiritually speaking. We need to snap out of it. We've got to regain a spiritual perspective on life. You know what his problem has been? He's been focusing on those people and what they said about him. And that's where some of you are today. You just won't get over it. What that person at work said about you and what that person on social media said about you and what your spouse said about you, you've got to stop focusing on people and what they said about you. You've got to stop focusing on problems and circumstances and situations. I totally lost perspective this last Thursday. Something took place, and you know what I allowed it to do? I allowed it to taint my entire day. And some of you are doing the same thing. You're allowing that person or that problem to taint how you see everyone else and how you act with the rest of your life you got to spiritually slap yourself and start asking some good questions. And you know what he comes to the conclusion of? Hope in God. Hope in God. I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. I I want to take that little part apart. Hope in God. I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. The first thing we see here is put your hope in God. Not in any other person, not in any job, not in your money, not in your health, not in a relationship. Put your hope in God. You will never escape disappointment if your hope is in anything or anyone but God. You will never escape disappointment if your hope is in anything or anyone but God. This unchangeable, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present, loving, caring God. You've got to put your hope in God. So put your hope there. Secondly, place your focus on the future. I shall again praise him. It's bad now. That doesn't mean it's going to continue to be bad. It's hard now. That doesn't mean it's always going to be hard. Present disappointments don't define your future destiny. Will you stop acting like it does? You're acting like it's always going to be hard and it's always going to be bad. The storm's will pass. The floods will subside. Ask Annie. The sun will come out tomorrow. Fetch your bottom dollar. There'll be sun. Come on, just think about tomorrow. Clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow till there's none. When I'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely. She lived in Illinois, okay? I stick out my chin and grin and say, oh, the sun will come out when? You know what, Chicago land? Spring is right around the corner. The flowers are going to bloom again. Summer will be here. It's going to be okay. Right now, some of you are in the winter time of your life, and there's problems, and there's people, and you're acting like it's never going to get better. You need to slap yourself. Spring is coming, spiritually speaking. You're going to be okay. So put your hope in God. Place your focus on the future. Verse 5 again, find your help in his presence. Find your help in his presence for the help of his presence. God is a present help, not a future help, not a past help. Right now, he is your help, no matter what the unbelievers say. And they were telling him, there is no God. Where is your God? 
There's another song of Korah, a psalm. Psalm 46, 1 through 3. Read it with me. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake and its swelling pride. God is a present help in your trouble. The comforting words of God's children in the Old Testament in Isaiah 41, do not fear, why? For I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Even the Lord Jesus in giving the great commission in Matthew 28. And lo, I am with you. How often? Always, even to the end of the age. Talk sense to your soul. The Lord is present with you right now through everything. And he always will be with you. That's how you handle the disappointments of life. You long for the living God. You sob through the struggle. You talk sense to your soul. And you focus through the fog. You know what it's like to drive down a country road. And there's fog everywhere. And it's really thick fog. And you can barely see the next, you know, telephone pole line in front of you. And it's like your focus is more intent. Your gaze is more intent. You are so focused, you don't want an accident. That's what this guy is doing spiritually. Look at verse 6 and 7. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls and all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Now I want you to notice, verse 6, he's honest with God. My soul is in despair within me. So... He's willing to admit, I'm hurting, God. I'm hurting. Listen, you can be in despair, but don't be in denial. Be in despair. That's okay. But don't be in denial. Admit you're disappointed. Admit you are discouraged. Stop playing pretend. It's okay to hurt. Sometimes we as Christians think we're, we're never supposed to suffer. And if we do, if we're hurting, we should never let anybody know this is a fallen world. I mean, at times, it's a very painful world. We are going to hurt from time to time. High tide, low tide, the ebb and flow of life. Hey, I'm a runner. Some of you are runners. Anybody who runs a lot, you, you have injuries. So it's, it's a part of running. I've, I've had tons of injuries, IT band, Achilles, hamstring problems, ankles, black toes that fall off. That's a pretty sight. You run, you have injuries. You live, you have problems. It's a part of living. We're in a fallen world. Thank God we have a God who is present with us. So he's honest with God, and now look at him look through the fog. He gazes, verse 6. Therefore, I remember you. I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Miser. He's catching a glimpse of God wherever he is. Listen, you look for God wherever you're located. You look for God whatever your circumstance is. You look for God, look for him, whatever your present situation might be. The psalmist is not where he wants to be. He's not in Jerusalem. He's in the land of Jordan, far north. 
He's not at the temple. He's in the mountainous region of the tribe of Dan. He wants to be on Mount Zion, don't we all? We want to be on Mount Zion. We want to be in the presence of God. We want to be with the people of God. We want to be where there's joy and celebration. We want to be on Mount Zion. And he says, I'm on Mount Miser. You know what it means? Littleness. That's exactly how he's feeling, and that's exactly how some of you are feeling. Like that big. Nobody cares about me. Nobody even knows what I'm facing. I'm all alone. Yeah. We're really good at throwing the pity parties, aren't we? And he's like, I'm just on Mount Miser, but I'm going to look for my God no matter how small I am because I might be small, my God is big. And so I'm going to look to my big God. So he's honest with God. He looks through the fog and he realizes that no matter the pain, God has a plan because he is divinely in control. Look at verse 7. It's very interesting. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves rolled over me. It's this this picture of this powerful, tumultuous sight and sound of waterfalls just pounding the ground and breakers crashing and waves rolling. And hey, I grew up at the Atlantic Ocean on the beach. I know what an angry sea looks like. I've been on an angry sea and I've been in the surf when the waves just crash over you and you just roll in the surf and you don't know what's up and what's down and you just kind of hope you can come up for breath. That's where he is. He's being battered and beaten wave after wave churning in this surf of suffering and flipped around and the riptide pulls him out and does it all again. And then he says this, they're your waterfalls, God, they're your breakers, they're your waves that, are roll, that have rolled over me. So all of the pain and all of the problems of life are under God's sovereign design and control. There is nothing outside of his design. There is nothing outside of his control. It is ultimately all God-directed and it is ultimately all God-designed with God's purpose in mind. Nothing's taken him by mistake. He sees everything that is going on in my life. So I must now trust his divine design. Trust his divine design. Including the problems and disappointments of this life. Trust him. Romans 8.28. Say it with me. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God will use it. God is in control. It's all a part of his divine design. How do I handle these disappointments? I long for the living God and sob through the struggles and talk sense to my soul and I focus through the fog and I rest in his care. Ah, just rest. Some of you are not very good at resting. I'm not very good at resting. I'm always on the go. I gotta do, gotta go, you gotta... Sometimes we just need to rest and rest in his care. The psalmist has been tossed around and gets his bearings. He comes up for air. And you know what he says? God really does love me. God really does care for me. After he's been tossed around, there is a God who loves me. There is a God who cares for me. Look at verse 8. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. He says, wait a minute, God, you've commanded your love. This is so beautiful. You know what he's saying? You will be loved by God today. 
you are loved by God today. You will experience the love of God today. It's God's command to you every single day. I have commanded my love to you, God says. You are loved, you will be loved, and you will experience my love this day. That is the love of Almighty God. And it's a hesed love is the word. It's a loyal love. There's nothing more loyal than God's love to you. It's inseparable love. Romans 8 describes it this way in verse 38. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing is going to take God's love away from you. Nothing can take God's love away from you. He has commanded this inseparable, loyal love to be upon you. His love for you is real. Not only does he command his love, he gives songs in the night, verse 8. His song will be with me in the night. That means discouragement and disappointment will not silence my songs. It doesn't matter what I go through. I can praise my God. I can sing when I'm down and disappointed. I can sing when darkness has descended upon my life. Like we sung earlier with the choir that led us. King of my heart. When the night is holding on to me, God is holding on. When the night is holding on to me, when things are dark, and I don't know where this is going, God is holding on. Job 35.10, but no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? And how does he end verse 8? A prayer to the God of my life. His love is assured. Songs in the night are assured. I will pray to my God. I will adore my God. I will thank my God. But he changes his name here. He's been using the name of God as Elohim. Now for the first time in this passage, he calls him Jehovah. The God of the covenant, the faithful God who cares for his people, who shows loving kindness to his people. The God who answers prayer. You are Jehovah and I pray to you. That's how you handle disappointments. You rest in his care. And then you wrestle with his doubt. Because all of a sudden, our psalmist goes and he has a relapse. <laughs> I look at this. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? What happened to God's love, buddy? What happened to songs in the night? He's just like you and me. It's called spiritual schizophrenia. That's what we have. We're all good with God. Everything's going great. We trust you, God. The next moment, where's God? Why is this happening to me? I don't understand this. He's doing the same thing, and he's a spiritual leader. He knows what it's like to struggle in this life. He's just like us. Listen to the strange mixture this man has of faith and doubt. Verse 9. I will say to God, my rock. You are my rock. Why have you forgotten me? What's up with that? You're strong and you're solid and you're sure. You're my rock. You're unchanging. You're immovable. You're my rock. You're my place of safety. You're my refuge. Where are you, God? What's going on? Why are you letting this happen to me? Why have you forgotten me? Unbelievable. He needs to slap himself again. That's all there is to it. Isn't it amazing how we allow our feelings to overwhelm our faith? You know, we feel forgotten, but we know we're not. 
We feel left behind, but we know we're not. We feel abandoned, but we know we're not. So we got this strange mixture of faith and doubt. And what, what is causing this spiritual schizophrenia in his life? People. Yeah, people. They're undermining his faith. You know, people can have a bad influence on us at times. Look what he says at the end of verse 9 and 10. I go mourning, saddened, grief-stricken because of the oppression of the enemy. That's people. Verse 10. Shattering of my bones, my adversaries reviled me. People and how mean they are and what they've said about me and ridiculed. Verse 10. They say to me all day long, where is your God? They make fun of me. They mock me. So he's got the enemy oppressing him. It's the actions they take. Life isn't fair. It just seems like there's this unjust treatment. And it just weighs on him mentally. And not only are their actions bad, but their words are bad. It says in verse 10, shattering on my bones, my adversaries revile me. They say to me, see, words, and you know this, sticks and stones may break my bones. Words will never hurt me. That's a lie. Man, words hurt so much more than actions sometimes. And, and you, you know insults, how they can pierce you, and, and accusations that just stab you. But he likens it differently. He likens it to a shattering of his bones. Words are like a smashing club. Boom! And it just, just destroys him, is what it does. And this is the second time it's happened. It's the same words from verse 3, now in verse 10. Where is your God? Where is your God? Someone who has said something hurtful to him and he hears it again and he hears it again or is it that he can't get it out of his head and they only said it one time? You know what that's like, don't you? You can't get it out of your head. You replay it over and over and over again what they said to you. And then you've got to tell somebody else, you, can you believe they said that to me? And you tell family, you, can you believe they said that to me? And then you email someone, you, you, they, this is what they said to me. You, you can't get it, it's haunting you. What they said to you, this is haunting him. What they said to him, your God doesn't love you. Your God doesn't care for you. Your God is not there for you. Your God has abandoned you. And he can't get it out of his head. He's wrestling with his doubt. How do you handle the disappointment of life? The last point is this. Well, you keep talking sense to your soul. He's got to slap himself again. And so verse 11 is just like verse 5. He repeats it. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. You know what? Sometimes we need to be reminded of things because we don't listen real well the first time. Sometimes it's not just one pill of the medicine. We're supposed to continue to take our medicine. And you know what? This is the medicine he needs to take. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. That's where my hope needs to be. For I shall yet praise him. Look to the future. Stop thinking about the past. The help of my countenance and my God. Now there's a change here. He's not talking about the presence of God, which is real. He talks about the countenance that God lifts. You know what God does to me sometimes and he does to you? He says, Scott, will you come here? Yes. And he takes his hand, spiritually speaking, under my chin with so much gentleness and care, and he says, will you look up at me? 
I want to lift your countenance. You need to see me and not the people. You need to see me and not the problems. And that's what he's doing with you today. He's saying, will you come to me? Yes. He puts his hand under your chin in such love and tenderness and care. He says, will you look up at me? You need to look to me. I love you. You need to see me. I'll give you songs in the night. You need to stop looking. Look at me. You need to stop looking at people over there and problems over there, and you need to look to me. And he'll raise your countenance. He'll, he'll take that frown and turn it upside down is what he's going to do. And that's how you handle the disappointments of life. Say it with me. You long for the living God. You sob through the struggle. You talk sense to your soul. You focus through the fog. You rest in his care. You wrestle with your doubt. And you keep talking sense to your soul.